Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. We're going to talk about Article 5 today of the Constitution. And this is a topic that has gained a lot of steam in the last uh, several months, particularly, or I should say, last couple of years, particularly with the continual abuse of power by the Obama administration when it comes to uh, several issues. I think the thing that uh, has upset people the most is that real federalism is easily on the ropes. I mean, I, I, could, I could say that real federalism has been dead for over 150 years. But what we've seen, particularly in the last half century, is a continual grab, a power grab by the federal government, or I should say the general government, at the expense of the states. And Richard Nixon was ingenious in this particular process when... Uh, he was president, they had something that he called something new federalism. And the idea was that the general government would block grant money to the states. Now, what they would also do with that money is say, here, we're going to give you the money, and then we're going to tie strings to it. So you have to spend the money on this particular program, uh, and then there are going to be mandates. You have to do X, Y, and Z with this money. Some of these mandates were funded and some of them were not. So the states would just have to come up with a way to pay for these things. And this was ingenious because Nixon sold it in a way that the states are getting, I mean, the states have control over things, but really it wasn't. I mean, this is, this is federal money that uh, the state should have had anyways. And we've seen this come back here recently with the recent edict from the Obama Justice Administration saying that Schools who want to receive federal funds have to have gender-neutral bathrooms. And so this has led to an outcry in several states, and they're saying, well, look, we're just not going to take your money. Well, this is, the, this is the real issue, I think, that's confronting this whole nature of federalism today. This whole issue of federalism is that the states have become just as addicted to the cash uh, as anyone else, any individual in the United States, the states receive large chunks of their budgets from the federal government, whether it's for social services, whether it's for military bases in their communities, or whether it's on defense contracts or other things. The states have become addicted to the cash. In reality, that money should stay in the states anyways. This is, this is the real uh, hidden problem with all this. The states have all the power in this government. And that's why I want to talk about an Article 5 Convention or Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution. Because Article 5 clearly illustrates that the states still have all the power in the general government, in the general government, in the, in, in the government in total, right? So there was a, 
interesting position made uh, in the lead up to the ratification of the Constitution, and that is that you had dual sovereignty in this political system. And later on, several people attacked this position, saying that you can't really have dual sovereignty. You either have sovereignty or you don't. You can't divide sovereignty. So who has sovereignty in this political system? Well, I think it's very clear, according to the documents that we have, that the ratification debates, the U.S. Constitution itself, that the states have complete sovereignty and they delegate authority to the general government. And the only way you can delegate authority is if you have the authority to begin with, meaning you have the sovereignty. You, you are the power. I think this is something that people have to emphasize. If you look at, or if you grant powers, if you look at Article 1, Section 1, it says all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in the Congress of the United States. Well, who's doing the granting? Well, the, the people of the states or the states. They're granting the power, and a power that's granted can be rescinded by the granting authority. So it doesn't say uh, all legislative power that we decide for ourselves is here in, you know, is listed now in the Congress of the United States. It says all legislative power herein granted. And I use the analogy in a classroom. If I'm the, the teacher in a classroom, the professor in a classroom, and I tell my class, okay, look, I'm going to let you grade your own assignments. I'm granting that power to the students of the class. And when those tests come back and everyone's got a 100, but yet I see there are actually mistakes on there, I can rescind that grant of power and say, you know what? No, you've abused the power. I'm taking it back, and I'm going to grade these tests because I have the authority to do so. I granted the power. In this particular case, the states have granted the legislative powers and the executive powers and the judicial powers to the United States government, the general government, in a written constitution. And, of course, a written constitution is different from the British model, whereas it's not written, so therefore... The Constitution is continually being interpreted by the courts. On, on a US, in a US, under the U.S. model, in a written Constitution, the only powers the general government has are listed in the document. And this is how the document was sold to a man in 1787 and 1788. The Congress, the executive branch, and the, and the judicial branch did not have any power, any more power than was expressly, and that term expressly was used in the ratification debates, than expressly granted through the Constitution. So this brings us to an Article 5 issue. And I'm actually going to talk about what the Congress can also do with the judicial branch, because this is something that people don't, don't really realize. But that brings us to an Article 5 convention. So the idea of an Article 5 convention, of course, the Congress can propose amendments and then three-fourths of the states have to ratify. Three-fourths of the states, either in the state legislatures or conventions, state conventions, have to ratify those amendments. Or two-thirds of the state legislatures can propose amendments, and then they have to be ratified by three-quarters of the states. So what this conclusively shows is that the states still have all the power. If the states themselves can propose amendments, which one of these amendments, people don't realize, they could propose an amendment that would abolish 
the entire Constitution. They could propose an amendment that would abolish the executive branch. They could propose an amendment that would, that would cut every power out of Article One, Section 8. They could propose an amendment that would enlarge the powers of the general government. They could propose an amendment that would do just, or amendments that would do just about anything they want. And so it shows that this is, as Article 7 says, a compact between states. The states have all the authority in this general government. Now, they don't act like it. They don't think like it. They believe and they act like they are merely corporations of the central authority. But they have all the power. So all of these issues we're going through where, well, a federal court has decided this or that. That's what a federal court said. Hmm. The states could also take care of that problem, too, with amendments. But this is the issue. The federal government has usurped power from the states, and the states have supinely taken it. And that's not what the founding generation did when the general government in Great Britain usurped power. They didn't, as, as Patrick Henry said, they didn't lie supinely on their backs and hug the elusive phantom of hope. They said enough. Now, thankfully, we have a system that could allow for peaceful opposition to the central authority. The, the states can just say no. Because what people also don't realize is that the states rely, or I'm sorry, the general government relies on state law enforcement to enforce federal laws. The federal government cannot hire enough people to go around and enforce all these federal laws. They just can't do it, so they have to rely on on state law enforcement to enforce federal law. And that's the dirty little secret. I mean, the federal government, of course, has marshals, and, and they have the Federal Bureau of Investigation. They have some of these agencies, uh, ATF and ICE and other things that have law enforcement power, but they, they don't have enough of them. And so they do have to rely on state and local law enforcement to ensure that federal law is enforced. Essentially, this is what's happening in Colorado and uh, Washington State when it comes to marijuana legalization. It's not really legal. What they've done is just decriminalized it. The law enforcement is not arresting people for breaking a federal law. And what are the federal government doing about it? Absolutely nothing, because they don't have the manpower to ensure that those laws are enforced. So it shows, I mean, that that particular case is showing that the emperor has no clothes, that it's a lot of bluff and bluster, but if the local law enforcement says, you know what, that's a bad law, we're not going to enforce it, it's not going to get enforced. It's just like states, some states have laws where you can't spit on the sidewalk and things of that nature. Well, they're not enforced, so it's no law. This is essentially what happened. It's really interesting if you look at the colonial history of the United States and, and um, in Virginia, for example, the state courts, the local courts, I should say, could essentially nullify what the House of Burgesses did in Richmond. 
And so they had a lot of discretion over enforcing law or, you know, finding people guilty of laws that they found illegal or unconstitutional. So essentially, the even in Virginia itself, there was a bottom-up structure in many ways to law enforcement. I mean, a state could pass a law that if you wear brown shoes, you're going to be thrown in jail. But of course, people would look at that law as unjust, and so it wouldn't be enforced. So it's really no law. This is when Roger Sherman said that if the general government passed laws that were unconstitutional, the states would be powerful enough to check it. Those are his terms. Roger Sherman of Connecticut, the states would be powerful enough to check it. Okay, so we've established that the states really do have all the authority in this government. They're not just mere corporations or legislative subdivisions of the general government. They're not federal districts that have to follow every federal edict, particularly unconstitutional ones. And so we've got this Article 5 situation where two-thirds of the states can propose amendments, and then three-quarters of the states have to ratify those amendments. Now, those are very large thresholds, but there is a move to try to get some of the thing, some of these things through. And we've had issues like, uh, you know, or proposals like a balanced budget amendment. Well, that's fine and dandy. Uh, a balanced budget amendment, as, I, as I've talked about on the Tom Wood Show, would be a good idea as long as, as you're not trying to balance the budget by raising taxes to 75%. So it has to go, you, you, what you have to do is have a corresponding amendment that would essentially cut spending as well. And so what, this is, what those amendments would do is curtail the power of Congress. The states would do it without Congress having a say in it whatsoever. Congress is the agent of the states in reality. The executive branch, the president, is essentially elected by the states, the Electoral College. People don't realize that. They, well, we don't need that Electoral College. It's, it's undemocratic. Well, not really. The president is elected by the states through the Electoral College. Because you don't vote directly for a president, you vote for an elector. Now, the states control how those electors vote. Again, the states have complete control. I've always been a proponent of a system with the Electoral College where electors are elected by congressional district, and they go with the vote of that particular elector. Electoral district. The problem with that is that every state would have to get on board with that particular system, or and I think uh, there are still one state. I think Nebraska does it that way. The problem is that that state kind of gets left out then. And there is a proposal now, unfortunately, that uh, several states have adopted, where the electoral college votes of that state go to whoever wins the popular vote overall, not just not in their state, but overall. So that essentially would nationalize the election. That's a very bad idea, but it's coming out of states, predominantly blue states, Democrat-controlled states, because they realize that demographics are on their side. As the United States shifts demographically and more and more immigrants come into the United States, they tend to vote Democrat. They're going to have a situation where, if that's the case, they're going to win every presidential election. You see, so that's, this is going back on what the founding generation, what they feared most, was, was, which was an elected monarchy. So the only way, then, you can, you can curtail that power is to cut the powers of the executive branch. And this, I think, 
as the founding generation rightly saw, the executive branch was the greatest danger, potential danger, in this Constitution, which is why my nine presidents who screwed up America and four who tried to save her, I concluded in the back of the book a section on what can be done. And so what you have in that are a series of amendments that I think would work to curtail the power of the executive branch. Now, this is controversial because some people fear that if you had a Article 5 convention, it would be a runaway convention, meaning that once the people got there, they would ignore what they have been instructed to do and do whatever they wanted to do. But of course, all these amendments would have to still be ratified by the states, three-quarters of the states, and that would be very hard to do if the amendments were things like, we're going to uh, propose a series of amendments that codifies Franklin Roosevelt's second Bill of Rights. Now, We've pretty much already done that without amendments. I mean, these have been the Democrat talking points for the last 70 years. But, I mean, this is the great fear. Well, if we have an Article 5 convention, then what's going to happen is the liberals are going to take over, and they're going to propose that everyone gets free health care. Hmm. Well, they did that without an amendment. So, in some ways, I'd rather have that. I'd rather have all this nonsense, all these stupid pieces of legislation just written into the Constitution because then there's no argument anymore. I mean, it solves the issue. The real problem is the Congress and the President and the Judicial Branch are doing things, well, more the Congress and the President. The Judicial Branch we'll talk about in a second. But they're doing things that are completely unconstitutional, and yet they say they are constitutional, of course, they're not, but see, this solves the debate. Either you've got to have it one way or the other. This is the real flaw in the Constitution. It allows for this for two different interpretations. Now, I could say my side is correct, and I believe the, his- the history of the document is on my side, which is the originalist position, which is the Constitution should be interpreted the way it was ratified. But you see, that's playing baseball. The other side is playing football. We're playing, we're playing two different games on two different fields. Baseball is based on tradition and custom, and um, you, have, you have rules that have been set there for years. Now, the rules can be changed, but it's very hard to do. And, and you know, history matters. You know, Babe Ruth matters. Hank Aaron matters. Willie Mays, they matter, right, in the game, because you're trying to compare, compare a current player. You know, how do they stack up against Willie Mays? How do they stack up against Babe Ruth? So tradition and, and, and those, these things matter. Whereas in football, the, the rules change every year. Tradition, not so much. Uh, and the objective is just to bulldoze your opponent into submission. And uh, who cares about tradition? It doesn't really matter because the game is always changing in some ways. I mean, the game today is much different than it was even 30 years ago. That's the other side. They just bulldoze you over. They beat you up, whether they're right or wrong. It's force. It's power. Baseball's not that way. There's a little finesse to it. And it's slower. And it's subtle. Not football. Now, don't get me wrong. I like football and baseball. I'm a more of a baseball fan than a football fan. But we're playing two different games here. So the one side that's trying to just bulldoze you over, that's the general government, the Congress, and the executive branch now. The states 
are out there getting bulldozed. Now, the states could say, you know what, we've got tradition on our side, we've got history on our side, you back off. But we have to get people to play the same game. So one of the ways they can do that is through an Article 5 convention. I think clearly that's one of the ways they can do it, is through an Article 5 convention. And that way the states tell the general government, you know what, we're going to control you and you can't do anything about it. Now, the, the, the claim is often made that the general government doesn't follow the Constitution now, so why would amendments matter? I think there is some merit to that particular argument. But the general government does follow the Constitution procedurally. They don't follow the powers, the enumerated powers. They do follow procedure. I mean, you know, they, they generally follow, not all the time, but they generally follow the procedures set forth in the Constitution for getting legislation passed and how these things work, you know, things like that. They don't follow the powers of, that, are, that are delegated and granted in Article 1, Section 8. The executive branch has created powers out of thin air. But what amendments of the Constitution would do is allow, and I think this is one of the other proposals, Dr. Kevin Gutzman has, has mentioned this in his proposals, the idea would be to have a referee of a state branch, a state you know, kind of group that would be able to referee this whole thing and say, you know what, general government, you're out of line, boom, you can't do that anymore, that's null and void. So you'd have to have some other oversight, essentially. You'd have to have an enforcement mechanism for the Tenth Amendment. That's the great problem with the Tenth Amendment. While I think there is an enforcement mechanism there, and it's just saying, the state saying, you know what, we're not going to enforce that law in our states, which is essentially nullification. Uh, that is an enforcement mechanism. But there's nothing in the Constitution that says this is how the Tenth Amendment is going to be enforced. So... Jefferson and Madison came up with a way. We're, we're just not going to enforce that law in our states. And that's it. That's an enforcement mechanism. So if you codified an enforcement mechanism, that would be a good start. I propose a series of amendments that would curtail executive power because I think, at the end of the day, that is the greatest threat to anybody, left or right, in the United States, is the executive branch. And, of course, on this podcast and other places I've talked about, Trump... I'm under, I'm under no illusion. There's not going to be anybody that's going to be good for the presidency. The presidency has, got, has acquired too much power, and really nobody in that office is going to be a good steward of that power. My only hope is that Trump has said some things, that would, particularly in foreign policy, that would be better than the alternative, which is Hillary Clinton. Uh, and I don't think you could say that with, say, Mitt Romney or John McCain and foreign policy in particular, I and mean, they're all the same. And foreign policy is the executive branch. That's what people don't realize. The executive branch is foreign policy. It, that is one of its primary responsibilities. Legislative policy, that's the Congress. Now, the president does have some control over that. In fact, uh, what's happened is they've used the veto as a legislative hammer, which is not supposed to happen. The president was not supposed to have any legislative power. At least that's how the Constitution was sold. Even when people mentioned that they would have some legislative power uh, in that with the veto, it was qualified by the fact that the Congress can override that veto. Now, we know that's very difficult to do. So one of the things I propose is that we drop that threshold for overriding a veto. 
instead of having a two-thirds majority, it should be a three-fifths majority. You go from 66% to 60%. 60% is easier to get. 60% is vastly easier to get. So what that means is that you still need a majority, not just 50 plus 1%. You still need a pretty sizable majority. But it allows for greater congressional control over the executive branch. And so in my, in my book, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, you know, I, I list, as I said, a series of amendments. One of the things I think needs to happen with the presidency is it needs to be cut to a one-time, six-year term. Uh, because the great evil that we see is that you know, the president for the first four years isn't going to do anything too dramatic. Now, I think you could say that Obama did. I mean, we had Obamacare in his first term. But in the second term, they really go crazy. And so what you do, you say it's one six-year term. You're not out there trying to run for president again in four years. Uh, you just got one term. You're out in six years. We had already been done with Obama two years ago. We'd have somebody else. And um, I think this is one innovation if you look at American constitutionalism and you look at constitutional history. The Confederate States of America, when they, when they drafted their own constitution, this is one thing they did, which I think uh, is very interesting and would be effective. They had a one-time six-year term for president. Not, and if you, the people that I've considered two of the best presidents in American history are Calvin Coolidge and John Tyler, both men who assumed office. They weren't elected. They assumed office, and uh, that's because, I mean, I, I think that one, one thing, now Coolidge was eventually elected himself for one full term, but they didn't have that burden of having to appeal to voters who, who, who elected them. So one thing I think that needs to be done is we need to change that veto power to make it, uh, first of all, the president needs to list a constitutional objective not just, I disapprove of this bill because, you know, uh, I don't like it. I mean, essentially, that's what we have now. You get a Democrat or a Republican talking point in the veto, and that's a sad veto. Uh, so they need to give a constitutional justification for as why they, they oppose that bill. Because if it's constitutionally sound, then the bill should become law. Otherwise, if it's not constitutionally sound, the president should veto it. But then again... We should, we should drop that two-thirds down to a three-fifths ratio for uh, overriding the veto. And I also think the president should have a line-item veto for appropriations bills. And I know this is, well, that's expanding the power of the president. Well, if an appropriation is not constitutional, it shouldn't go through. And what would happen if you just had, uh, you know, the, the Congress would then pass a series of omnibus bills where they would have unconstitutional legislation in the bill, so the president would have to sign it or veto the whole thing. There could be something constitutional and very worthwhile in that bill, but they'll load it up with pork and other things, which would make it to where uh, you know the president would be forced to sign an unconstitutional bill or not. So you give him a line item veto, and that takes care of that problem. But again, three-fifths can override that veto. So I think these would be worthwhile amendments. One of the things, of course, that we often see is the unconstitutional uh, deployment of the armed forces. And so I think the president has uh, should have some checks on that type of power. Uh, and one of the things I said, you know, is the president should not be able to deploy the militia outside of American borders. This is the, now the National Guard, without the consent of the state legislatures 
or call the militia into actual service of the United States without the consent of the state legislatures. And uh, the president cannot deploy the armed forces of the United States into actual combat unless we are suddenly attacked or invaded without the consent of Congress. I mean, the Congress has to declare war. So Congress would actually then have 30 days if we're suddenly attacked or invaded to ensure that this was a justifiable use of the military power and they could approve it at that point, declare war. Also, I think that when the president signs treaties with foreign powers, you should drop the threshold from two-thirds to three-fifths to get these things ratified. But no treaty, there's nothing, that no foreign agreements, no executive agreements with foreign powers, none of these things would be constitutional. The president would have to have Senate approval of any foreign document, and those, and those treaties could not supersede the laws of the United States, of the Constitution, or of the several states. So you're cutting that, you're having Congress play a greater role in foreign policy, which is what the founding generation thought should happen anyways. I think the president should have, uh, there should be a clearer definition of what the president can be impeached for. And basically, I went back to Madison's definition of what constituted impeachable offenses, which was uh, not only treason and bribery, but also incapacity, negligence, perfidy, peculation, oppression, violation of the oath of office, abuse of power, uh, and other high crimes or misdemeanors, including violation of the laws of the United States or the laws of the several states. I think also the president should have a, and, and there should be an amendment that cuts the president's powers to include that, and this is, the, this is the wording that I wrote for this amendment, the president of the United States shall not issue proclamations, orders, statements, or decrees of a legislative nature or in regard to foreign policy, create commissions, committees, boards, regulatory agencies, or appoint dictators, czars, or any other non-elected government official, organization, or agency unless prescribed by the Constitution of the United States, Submit a budget for the executive branch or the government of the United States. Withhold non-classified information from the Congress of the United States or undertake any acts of a legislative or judicial nature. And that last part essentially comes from the ratification debates. And this is how it was argued. The president would not have any legislative or judicial power. So I think these things would do a great deal to mitigate the effects of a properly elected, essentially, king which is what we have. So you could properly elect the president. If they really have limited power, it would not be very dangerous to do so. But that needs to happen. And then I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, you could, we, could, we could cut the power of the federal judiciary very easily. The Constitution is clear on this. The Congress has complete control over the judicial branch. We don't think so. Read Article 3. The only court that is established by the Constitution is the Supreme Court. And the Congress can control how many people are on the bench and what their jurisdiction is. So they can tell the Supreme Court, we're only going to have three justices. Uh, We're only going to have one justice. They want. They can't abolish the Supreme Court unless you had an amendment to do so. But they could could, uh, really cut its power. And they could decide that it has no jurisdiction over particular issues. So this idea of judicial review, 
Well, I mean, the founding generation was generally split on this issue. I think the majority probably wanted some type of uh, judicial oversight of the federal government. Patrick Henry said he hoped they would have it. And the states that had that type of process already in the state legislature, state state constitutions, uh, they were generally fine with it. The states that didn't were usually the ones that were against it because they saw danger in it. So there was you know, some discussion. The real kicker, though, was that the general government, the, the judicial branch of the general government, would not declare state law unconstitutional. That was the great fear. Not federal law, but state law. Because if the federal courts can supersede the state courts, well, then the states have no power. And if the federal government can just go in and min- uh, meddle with, with state constitutions, well, then the states become mere districts of the federal government. And this is essentially what we're seeing. This is the real problem. The federal government is ruling on cases. They have no jurisdiction, really. Uh, but this is where we get into incorporation, and there's been a, a question for me to do it to do a podcast on incorporation. I'll do that. <clears throat> Maybe the next one or the one after that. I'll I'll talk about incorporation. But the Congress can curtail the power of the general government. It could abolish every single federal court, but the Supreme Court. It could get rid of every appellate court that they've established. Every single one of them. All those federal judges could be without a job tomorrow. If the Congress would just say, you know what, we're going to abolish the federal court system. We're going, to, we're going to rescind the Judiciary Acts, the several Judiciary Acts. And again, they could just say, you know what, uh, we're not going to give the Congress power over X, Y, and Z. Or, I'm sorry, we're not going to give the judicial branch jurisdiction over X, Y, and Z. The Congress could do this tomorrow. That's the dirty little secret. Congress will complain about the judicial branch, but they will do nothing about it because it gives them something to complain about and takes the burden off of them. So when we're thinking about this relationship between the states and the general government and the branches of the general government and how these things have gotten out of control, certainly the executive branch is out of control. Certainly, the judicial branch wades into areas that it should not. The Congress could take care of the judicial. And the states could take care of it, too. The states, through an amendment, could abolish the entire Supreme Court if they wanted to. That's a much more difficult process, but they could do that. So, I think one thing we need to be looking at in the United States is an Article Five model for curtailing the power of the general government. whether it's through uh, an amendment that would, amendment series of amendments that would cut executive power, a balanced budget amendment, a referee, a state referee of federal law. There's all kinds of ideas. There actually is the, um, uh, there are several organizations out there that are pushing this particular idea. Uh, I think the Compact for America is the one that um, is really uh, has gotten a lot of steam for this. And, and there are several states that have signed on to an idea of an Article 5 convention. Now, again, some people are afraid of this. They think it's going to be a runaway convention. But the states still control. Uh, they can control what's on the table. And if these amendments come back and they're awful, they're not going to be ratified. You need three-quarters of the states to ratify. And I highly doubt some of these red states are going to ratify something that has 
a codification of the Second Bill of Rights. It's just not going to happen. So the convention has rules. It has certain amendments that it can that it can uh, that it can discuss, and those that it can't. And that is, of course, uh, the the real issue: setting up the rules. Well, that's my thoughts on an Article Five convention, on Article Five of the Constitution, the powers of the states. The states are sovereign in this particular government. And it's clear through the Constitution that's the case. They've delegated or granted power to the Congress, to the judicial branch, to the executive branch, to the Constitution. And therefore, they can also rescind that power if they choose to do so. We just need to all get on the same field and playing the same game. And if we can do that, I think the originalist position, and this is why education is very important, people need to understand these things. The original position is the most logical, the most historically accurate, and the best path forward in a positive way for the future of the United States. It works for both the left and the right. This is not just some you know, right-wing crazy concoction where it's going to hurt anyone out there who believes in a left-wing cause. It's not, that's not the case. Uh, there are many left-wing states. I mean, for example, you could have had Romney care in Massachusetts, and the people of Alabama wouldn't care because they can have socialized medicine in Massachusetts if they want it. That really was a federalism issue, and, and that's how people should have talked about it back in 2012, not trying to run away from it. I mean, Massachusetts can do what it wants. We can say, well, that's a bad law, but if Massachusetts wants bad laws, well, they can have bad laws. The people of Massachusetts want it. It's just not, we're just not subjecting the entire United States to a bad law. That's where federalism really works. All right. So that's it. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. <laughs>